Wesley-led Center would like to welcome you to this audio program, High Net Worth Matrimonial Asset Recovery, Tips and Best Practices from the Experts. Use the participation tab at the bottom of your screen to send a question to the presenters. Program materials can be found under your supplements tab. It's my pleasure to introduce our speakers today, Christopher Knoll, Hannah Davey, and Amber Kornreich. I'll turn the floor over to them now for further introductions. Good morning or good afternoon, everybody, depending on where you're listening from. Welcome to the High Net Worth Matrimonial Asset Recovery Podcast, where we will discuss tips and best practices based on our collective experience in this area. Typically, these cases involve multiple jurisdictions, so much of our conversation will involve how to address the challenges that come with a dissolution or divorce proceeding for a high net worth family that holds assets in many countries around the world. My name is Christopher Knoll, and I'm an attorney at Secor Law in Miami, Florida. My practice involves international litigation involving corruption and financial fraud, as well as cross-border insolvency. With me are Hannah Davey, a director in the London office of Grant Thornton, and Amber Kornreich, a partner at the firm Kornreich & Associates in Miami, Florida. And I'll turn the floor over to both of them to introduce themselves in more detail. Hello. Everyone, um, nice to meet you all. My name is Hannah Davey. Yes, thank you, Chris. Um, I'm a director in the London office of Grant Thornton. I'm an insolvency practitioner and I lead Grant Thornton's growing contentious estates and family disputes team, which specialises in assisting beneficiaries, trustees and representatives in matrimonial, family trust and probate disputes. Hi, my name is Amber Kornreich. Thank you for having us today. I'm a partner at Kornreich & Associates where I work with my father, Jerry Kornreich, and we practice uh, on complex and high net worth marital and family law matters. So combined, we've handled dozens of high net worth matrimonial disputes in the United States, Latin America and the Caribbean, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Today, I will act as participating moderator and we will divide the program into three major sections. First, we will examine the synergy between matrimonial council and asset recovery council, and what each team member brings to the table before, during, and after a divorce proceeding. Second, we will outline some of the key points involved in planning, serving, and litigating a divorce proceeding. And finally, we will provide some takeaways to think about before any of the people listening handle their next high net worth matrimonial case. So first, we'd like to discuss how do matrimonial counsel and asset recovery professionals mix. This is divided into three sections, before filing, during prosecution of a divorce proceeding, and then after judgment. So first, before filing, matrimonial counsel will generally take the lead early on, counseling a client on the necessary planning and information gathering steps. At this point, asset recovery professionals can be brought on board in a consulting role to provide a lifestyle analysis and potential forensic analysis of documents and records that are easily available. Hannah, based on your experience, what are some of the examples of how this type of intelligence can come into play at this early stage? We've seen the use of intelligence services at this early stage on numerous occasions, often where there are concerns regarding concealment or transferring or dissipation of assets. So, for example, we were instructed by a wife to trace the assets of her spouse, further to a suspicion that he was taking steps to conceal disperse and shield certain assets from matrimonial proceedings following their marital breakdown. 
our corporate intelligence team conducted an examination of web domains and infrastructure to reveal links between the husband and offshore interests managed by nominees for his benefit. In addition, comprehensive searches of the statutory and commercial databases were undertaken together with targeted open source research, which established the extent of the husband's overseas interests. Public social media posts can also be a really great source of information. And in this case, we also established details of the husband's post-separation lifestyle, recent movements and trophy assets, including vintage vehicles and jewellery. The report provided the wife um, with vital evidence to contest the husband's statement of assets. And it gave her a vital advantage in the negotiations to secure an equitable division of the marital assets. And it really demonstrates how early identification of assets helps to make better informed funding and strategy decisions and paves the way for robust negotiations and prompt recoveries. Great, and that's all important information to learn early on. And as you mentioned, there's always a cost benefit analysis that goes into these cases. So the more information that, that the party can get at the onset, the better that their strategy will be. Are there any other tools that matrimonial counsel should be aware of at this stage? Yeah, at this point, I think you're right, Chris. I mean, where a risk of dissipation or transferring of assets is identified, matrimonial lawyers should consider with asset recovery professionals whether freezing orders, injunctions or receiver appointments may be appropriate to prevent the dissipation of assets, especially if the assets are held offshore or there is evidence that they are being transferred offshore. And these tools can be incredibly powerful at this pre-litigation stage, as receiver appointments and freezing orders can be used to secure assets whilst these proceedings or the divorce proceedings litigation is ongoing. And it means you can be sure the assets are still available at the end of the litigation. So you can enforce against them if an amicable settlement or recovery is not made. Right, and that's a critical point. There needs to be something to tap into in order to pay the settlement or judgment at the end. And some spouses don't always act in, in the best or in good faith during this process. Exactly. Moving on to during, moving on to during prosecution, asset recovery professionals will serve as support typically at this point for matrimonial counsel, at least during the pendency of the dissolution proceeding. Amber, could you explain how this joint effort typically works? Well, of course. So as Hannah has explained, ideally, as much relevant information as possible will have been obtained before the filing. However, there will also be court mandated financial disclosures of each party's financial position early in the dissolution proceedings. Depending on your jurisdiction, these disclosures may be called mandatory disclosure. Asset recovery professionals can provide expert level analysis of disclosed information, including a review for any misstated or missing disclosures based on the party's prior lifestyle and forensic analyses. Lawyers may also decide to hire other professionals, such as forensic divorce CPAs, to assist with reviewing documents and making detailed discovery requests. Great. And additionally, at this stage, there are multiple tools um, as an asset recovery professional that can be employed, typically to obtain information held either domestically for a foreign dissolution proceeding or abroad. Namely, U.S. law provides assistance pursuant to uh, U.S. Code Chapter 1782 and Chapter 15 of the Bankruptcy Code 
both of which we'll go into in greater detail later on in the program. Abroad, a Norwich Pharmacal order may, be provi may provide additional information related to offshore holdings, um, and we'll also discuss that in greater detail later in today's program. Hannah, if risk of dissipation is identified at this early stage, could you elaborate on your earlier point regarding receivers and freezing orders? Yes, sure. I mean, as I mentioned, receiver appointments are very powerful and they work very well with freezing orders and or injunctions. And when you've started proceedings and identified a risk of dissipation and where there is a real and immediate need to secure assets around the world. I'm sure most matrimonial lawyers will be well aware of injunctions and freezing orders. So I'll talk, yes, a little bit more about the use of receivers, which we in England have seen a real increase in over the last few years. I think this is really due to their flexibility, which, as they're granted by the court, means they can be tailored to the specific circumstances of each case, which means the terms of the appointment, the property over which a receiver can be appointed, can take on a number of different forms. So, for example, we've been appointed receiver over shares in various companies to enable us to take full control and preserve the value of the underlying company, as well as taking control of more exotic assets, such as valuable artwork, boats and planes. And in one such case recently during divorce proceedings, one party had provided certain undertakings to the BVI court in this case, um, that the assets of a BVI company, including the shares, um, were owned would not be dissipated. So the other party had obtained evidence that the undertaking had been breached and that the certain assets had been dissipated. So in view of this, they made an application um, to the BVI court and a an, uh, receiver was appointed. And they were ordered to investigate and report to the court on whether the undertaking had been breached and to ensure that the remaining assets and the rights associated with them, including the right to receive dividends, were preserved and protected until the substantive action was determined. The books and records were obtained from numerous sources, including banks and share agents, to enable an investigation to be conducted into the alleged dissipation of assets. And these investigations revealed that significant assets, being dividends received from the shares, had been dissipated in breach of the undertaking. So appropriate steps were then taken to ensure that the shares could not be dealt with in any way absent the express written approval of the receivers and all future dividends payable were paid to the receivers to hold pending further orders of the court. And this just demonstrates really that the appointment of a receiver to effectively hold the ring and investigate the position if it's needed pending the resolution of the matrimonial dispute is an incredibly powerful option for litigants and can ensure that assets remain available to them in the event of a successful claim. And in these circumstances, based on your experience, how much pushback do you get when there's an attempt to appoint a receiver over a company, either domestically or offshore? Uh, well, I mean, often people are not very happy about it, but um, a receiver is first and foremost an independent officer of the court. And as such, they must act fairly and impartially and for the benefit of all parties interested in the assets of the company or the assets subject to the order, not just for the party who has um, initiated the, the litigation or the receiver appointment. So therefore, if the court considers it appropriate to appoint a receiver, it's not very easy to challenge. So it's 
as again, as I said, it's incredibly powerful and um, can be used very effectively in these types of situations. Right. So it's a small pain, but if everybody's acting in good faith, then it shouldn't be that challenging for, for the participants. Yes, exactly. So the next phase is after judgment, after there's either been an amicable settlement or what was perceived as an amicable settlement or some type of judgment from a court of competent jurisdiction. Amber, could you explain uh, what happens at, at this point once a judgment has been obtained? Of course, Chris, and, and your point is well taken because the first important thing to understand is that getting a judgment is the final step. The majority of the time in these contested circumstances, the case will have gone through a contested trial. Ideally, both parties would be present and testify before the judge, and all of those documents and valuable discovery that the asset recovery professionals, forensic CPAs, and attorneys have worked very hard to obtain will be the centerpiece of that trial. And so because of this, the discovery phase should not be rushed. So once the judgment is obtained, the attorney must decide whether the judge got it right, will there need to be an appeal of any issues. Sometimes litigants do pay and sometimes they don't. So when they do when they do not pay, that is when it is time to get with the asset recovery team. It's also important to note that these judgments are enforceable and can be for a long period of time. So as Amber mentioned, this is typically the point where asset recovery professionals are engaged if they weren't brought on board at the onset or when the planning stages of, of the divorce were going on. One practice point worth mentioning at, at this time is when you obtain a judgment, it's important to consult with Asset Recovery Council because of their international expertise to ensure that a domestic judgment is crafted in a form that is easily exportable to other jurisdictions. Namely, there are certain findings and awards that many civil law jurisdictions in Europe and around the world and other uh, relevant offshore jurisdictions will not enforce without independent and potentially costly review. These are typically sanctions or, or judgments based on, on vexatious litigation conduct or some type of bad faith conduct. Conversely, there are judgments such as those related to child maintenance that are typically more quickly enforced in certain jurisdictions. Additionally, if asset recovery professionals were not retained prior to the onset of the dissolution action and the client believes that there were assets withheld from disclosure, these professionals can use a variety of tools to analyze the disclosures and identify any potential areas of further inquiry. After judgment, Asset Recovery Council may also create a strategy to bring new claims against the former spouse or third parties based on bad faith conduct during the dissolution proceeding. Hannah, based on your practice, what happens when the former spouse fails or refuses to pay the judgment? In the cases that we've generally dealt with, that judgment debt can be used to then bankrupt the spouse and a trustee in bankruptcy appointed. And this can be very effective where assets are thought to be held out of the relevant jurisdictions or there is evidence that assets have been dissipated or transferred away prior to that judgment being obtained. As trustees will be able to investigate what has happened and use their wide-reaching powers to recover those assets from around the globe for the benefit of the creditors of the bankruptcy estate which would include the aggrieved spouse. I mean, in the UK, certain spousal claims such as child maintenance, it's slightly different, but they actually survive a bankruptcy. So in the UK, they can't be compromised within a bankruptcy and continue regardless of the bankruptcy. 
But we have one such case where I'm appointed as a trustee in bankruptcy, um, where the couple's marriage had ended and the husband obtained a divorce in a different, more difficult jurisdiction, shall we say, um, where no financial provision was made for his ex-wife, despite his estimated net worth being circa 300 million. So the ex-wife presented a petition for an English divorce because she lived here at the time and judgment was handed down by the family court resulting in the bankrupt being ordered to pay circa 24 million to the ex-wife. In this situation, a litigation funder who'd been involved actually purchased the judgment and as no payment was made, they did um, petition for his bankruptcy and that was made in his absence while he was out of the country. And we were then appointed trustees in bankruptcy to look to recover assets for the benefit of his wife or his ex-wife and any other creditors. So it can be very powerful um, tool and is often used in these situations. And I think you identified a, a common theme because we also in our practice see, see strategies employed where um, often in, in divorces involving Russian parties, they'll obtain a friendly judgment in Russia or in some other jurisdiction that effectively cuts out the wife. Um, Normally, it's the husband who's trying to keep money away from his ex-wife. And we'll have to relitigate that and prove that that judgment was obtained in error or as the result of fraud, or there was some influence from the parties on the court that led to that judgment, and then bring it into a more friendly court, like in the US or in the UK, where a more equitable you know, determination of, of the asset separation can be made. Yes, definitely. So before we move too much farther into depth, I think it's important that we at least briefly mention pre-divorce planning ethics. There are ethical obligations that counsel have throughout the process. Amber, could you talk a little about what happens when counsel is asked to shield assets from a divorce proceeding? A lawyer must not advise a spouse who is seeking to hide or dissipate assets from the other before a filing. A lawyer always wants to guard the best interests of the potential client, and of course, it's tempting to get hired by a moneyed party, but your ethical obligations and commitment to professional responsibility is paramount. Some clients will try to use their strong will, their influence, and their position to try to pressure lawyers to giving this type of advice. And it's essential that a lawyer maintain their ground and avoid giving advice that would allow a spouse to hide or otherwise divert marital assets. The American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers has put out a publication called The Bounds of Advocacy, and that outlines the goals for family lawyers to provide leadership, to promote the highest degree of professionalism and excellence in the practice of family law. That publication has an entire chapter entitled, An Attorney Should Not Condone, Assist, or Encourage a Client to Transfer, Hide, Dissipate, or move assets to improperly defeat a spouse's claim. So hiding assets to defeat a spouse's claim is a fraud upon the client's spouse and is likely to be a fraud on the court. On the other hand, a spouse who is concerned that their spouse is potentially engaging in pre-divorce planning or hiding assets may be able to be advised delicately. So a lawyer must keep their ethical obligations in mind and be very cautious with this type of advice. On that point, how do courts attempt to prevent the dissipation of assets during a divorce? Because 
obviously we wouldn't be talking about this if there weren't bad actors out there who, who against their ethical obligations did do some of these things that we're discussing. Sure. Well, many jurisdictions will have a status quo order or a similar standing order that advises all parties to a dissolution proceedings to leave all assets and liabilities as they are, not to take out any loans, encumbrances, mortgages, not to cut off credit cards, not to make transfers, etc. So, and discovery will sometimes be permitted for a longer period of time or more in depth when there is preliminary evidence of dissipation of assets. So this really highlights the importance of taking meaningful depositions and using a forensic team to dive deep into the facts. Perfect. And, and again, that, the ethical considerations are something that need to be kept in everybody's head during this entire process. Um, moving on to the engagement of professionals. A lawyer must understand that when it comes to complex financial cases, he or she should not take this on alone. Hannah, you and your team have handled numerous high net worth divorces and ultra high net worth divorces. What are some of the advantages of hiring asset recovery specialists that you've seen in your practice? Having asset recovery specialists involved at an early stage to provide intelligence around assets owned, their structures and values can add real tangible benefits when it comes to negotiating settlements and planning safeguarding strategies, as we discussed earlier. In addition, we have experience of recovering assets from around the globe. I mean, this is what we do every day. So we can add some real insight and assistance with building a strategy to assist with those cases where there may be evidence of dissipation or potential recovery issues. Also where matrimonial lawyers may think certain jurisdictions holding assets may be scary from a recovery perspective, we will likely have seen and recovered assets in these jurisdictions, so can provide some support and comfort when dealing with these types of cases. Also, I would say getting asset recovery specialists in place early to assist with designing a strategy at the outset, where there are international assets or concerns over dissipation, can help also from a cost perspective. So rather than bringing us in to assist with enforcement at the point where judgment has already been obtained, for the reasons we've already touched on. However, if this is the case, using asset recovery specialists to take on the enforcement can also help spread the cost risk. We are able often to work on a flexible fee basis, so whether that be by obtaining funding or acting on a contingent basis or a percentage of assets recovered, for example. We can also bring in our local expertise, relationships and knowledge to identify parties in the relevant jurisdictions to work with us on these recovery phases. So really some really important points there which can really add value to a matrimonial lawyer's um, you know, position in these cases. Great, so we've heard from, from Hannah and myself about the benefits, but let's hear from uh, a family lawyer. Amber, does this advice hold up? Absolutely. Forensic accountants, private investigators, and asset recovery professionals like Chris and Hannah should be considered on a case-by-case -case basis and in general engaged as early as possible to form a cohesive team. It's very important that the lawyer explain to the client 
what each team member's role is, and as a matter of professional liability, advise the client that the divorce lawyer is not a CPA, is not an investigator, and is not an asset recovery specialist. The lawyer should allow the other team members to answer appropriate questions, and the lawyer should serve as a liaison to help forward the client's questions and concerns and help explain the overall strategy to the appropriate person. At our office, we often use the term captain, team captain, and while every case team dynamic is different, it's often the matrimonial lawyer, the divorce lawyer, that's developing and guiding the strategy with the advice of the asset recovery, forensics, and other professionals. So each professional plays a specific role. Great, and it really is a cost-benefit analysis uh, between the cost of the professionals and the potential results. But in, in the context of, of high net worth and ultra high net worth matrimonial disputes, often the families have very complex financial structures that are only getting more increasingly complex day by day and typically the benefit does outweigh the costs definitely and chris there's also the potential for litigation funding in many of these cases as i mentioned a moment ago i mean have you experienced how that can assist in these complex high net worth divorce matters Absolutely. Litigation financing and funding is an emerging trend in, in marital disputes, especially when there's inequity between the two spouses. Often, even though the families are high net worth or ultra high net worth, one spouse controls the finances. And despite freezing orders and, and different court orders that can be put into place to pay for the, the spouse with, without access to the funds proceedings, there is inequity that, that comes up. Generally, financing terms with funders involve a sale, of, a sale of a portion of the anticipated recovery or an investment in the case. Um, typically, there's a due diligence process that's involved to make sure that the investment isn't, isn't being made in a case that doesn't have a chance of recovery. And typically, the financier will get a multiple added to the return. Um, this option certainly is not for everyone, and it should be undertaken with careful consideration and advice from counsel. But in many cases, especially as I've seen in my practice, it provides a necessary cash flow to survive the litigation process. Um, and then in terms of the marketplace, there are many funding companies. There are small shops that deal with specific types of claims. There are funders out there that only deal with matrimonial claims. And the other end are large corporate funders who are publicly listed on stock exchanges and invest in a wide swath of different types of lawsuits. So it's, it, like I said, it's not something for everyone, but it's something definitely to consider um, to make the playing field more equal when, when you're going through this process. So Amber, what are the most important things that a client of yours can do at the onset of the divorce process? The most important task for your client is instructing them to gather all the documents they can legally and ethically obtain. Have them bring to you everything because there may be information buried in, in an unexpected document that could be useful. You know, often the client you know, has a hard time judging what is important and what is not. You also may want to ask the client, what types of cards or accounts have you observed the spouse using? Simple questions may lead to important answers. Of course, bank documents, especially um, you know, for accounts that are jointly held, are also a very important um, document to attempt to obtain. I think Hannah, one of the what things- kind of 
Sorry, Chris. I think you were going to answer my question anyway, so I'll, yeah. I'll feed the floor to you. Yeah, I think I was going to say that one of the things that we have been um, seeing more of and I think people should be very aware of is crypto um, and those kind of digital assets. So, for example, when you're doing the bank, you know, gathering bank information, looking for signs that there may be crypto assets is becoming increasingly important. And you know, also, if you can find the key or know where the key is and locate it, obviously, that would be amazing. But generally, you would need to look for as a key or as identify, you know, signs of crypto assets would be a string of characters usually a combination of numbers, letters, and digital references. And these can often be found on bank statements, not the specific one, which is the key, but sections of it or references to long, um, strange looking characters can often give an indication that there are investments being made into and out of cryptocurrency. And for example, the key can often be disguised as other things. So we've seen, um, one crypto key etched onto a small metal plate, which was then glued onto the owner's computer to make it look as if it was part of the computer itself. So again, something just to look out for, things like that, that might um, lead you to, to understand more about what the other spouse has in relation to crypto um, and assets there. Also, yeah. think, sorry, Amber. I was just going to say the other thing to look out for is cryptocurrency exchange apps, for example. They they can um, be very key when you're looking to see whether your your spouse may be investing in cryptos. And I think it's just becoming more and more popular. So definitely something we'll need to be aware of and learn more about over the coming months and years. Yeah, Hannah, I would agree. You know, one of the biggest trends emerging is crypto assets. I, I just read a statistic that there are currently 24,452 ATMs in 75 countries, Bitcoin ATMs, and that this is up 353% from 2019. So crypto certainly cannot be ignored. As far as other important documents, the tax return is one of the most important documents. So when parties file jointly, it's important for the lawyer to know that often a CPA will be willing to give either spouse the joint returns that have been filed. Tax returns can provide detailed financial information and can serve as a great starting point. Loan applications or applications for financing are also very important documents to look for and obtain. Often a spouse will need to sign on a mortgage or other loan financing, which will require a sworn personal financial statement that can be compared to other documents uh, collected during the process. Amber, do you see it as a red flag if the tax returns aren't jointly filed? Not necessarily, Chris, because people have, um, you know, are advised by their accountants whether or not filing jointly is advantageous. So there may be reasons that are not nefarious for parties to be filing separately. Okay. And on the same theme, spouses should check safes, safety deposit boxes, filing cabinets, or other places in the home where documents and important documents are usually kept. This can be a little bit tricky, um, but some points of caution for clients who are looking through documents ahead of filing could be what based on your experience, Amber? 
Well, one point of caution is to advise clients not to open mail that's addressed to the other spouse. Um, but where the mail came from could be helpful. It could help guide more questions, but a spouse should not um, open up mail that's addressed to the others. There are also domestic violence considerations in certain cases. So if you're advising a client who's in an abusive relationship, that client must be extremely cautious not to trigger the abuser uh, with their requests. For example, sometimes there are auto notifications, uh, you know, when you attempt to get information from bank or checking accounts, a text message or two-factor identification, something that will go to the person's email. So you really have to be careful with that. Also, cell phone pictures can be useful, but it's really important that the lawyer know where the document came from so that they can determine whether it's ethically permitted to be used in litigation. It's important to advise clients not to, you know, hack into the, the other spouse's email or to go into locked computers. Perfect. And just to touch on two of the points that you just raised, as a practice point, we typically ask a new client at intake if there are domestic violence concerns because that informs a lot of our strategy if investigators are being used or just how open we can be about the investigation. Certainly, you don't want to be open if there's a risk of harm to your client. Um, and then you mentioned auto notifications from banks. And in the U.S., it can be a little tricky, but in offshore jurisdictions that are popular amongst people trying to hide assets like the British Virgin Islands and some of the other Caribbean islands, often we'll go in and ask the court that is, is examining our request for information to enter a gag and seal order that prevents disclosure. Um, typically, you're asking for information from a registered agent, and their job is, is more neutral than, than a relationship banker would typically have. So upon threat of sanctions or some other type of negative reaction from the court, these types of individuals typically will keep the, the investigation quiet. Um, Hannah, at this point, what other documents would be on the list of, of kind of your perfect set uh, coming into this type of analysis? Um, documents such as um, things which are filed locally in different jurisdictions. So if assets are held offshore, you can obtain open source information in those jurisdictions on corporate um, holdings, for example. Also, we found insurance policies can be very useful because they contain details of physical assets such as art, vehicles, yachts, planes, for example, um, which can be incredibly insightful. Also, understanding who the other spouse's advisors are and obtaining their de contact details can be really important. So you can then look to obtain disclosure in due course. In addition, we found sort of social media posts of associates and new partners can be incredibly insightful. And I, I agree on the on all of it, but especially on the advisor's front, because um, one of the, the largest divorce cases in history, the Rebelevlov divorce, uh, they were a Russian couple. The proceedings were in the United Kingdom. It's known, I think, still as the most expensive divorce settlement in history. It was 999,999,999.99 pounds because there was an issue of pride and uh, how much money Mr. Rebelevlov was willing to give his ex-wife. But stemming from that is a huge dispute that's still ongoing, I think, in the courts of Monaco and the United Kingdom involving the art advisor because the divorce decree involved the transfer of 150 million pounds of blue chip art uh, 
And upon examination and conversation with the art advisor, it came out not only that Mr. Rybolovlov was trying to shield those assets, but also claims that the art advisor had overcharged the family by the tune of 100% on the purchase of all of those assets. So that's an entirely new claim that, that I suppose both spouses will be able to potentially gain from um, after it's resolved. But advisors hold a host of information about their clients. So the next point um, that I think we should discuss is rethinking prenuptial agreements and whether they provide value in this context. So Amber, from a matrimonial attorney's perspective, is a prenuptial agreement worth it? Many clients and lawyers have negative views about prenuptial agreements and their purposes. But one unique advantage in this context is the requirement of full financial disclosure prior to entry into the agreement. So a spouse will obtain a personal financial statement as of the time of entering into the agreement. And this document can be very useful in tracking down what assets or liabilities uh, exist in the future and the institutions and locations where those are held. It's also an opportunity for spouses to ask questions about the other's financial position. And this can be beneficial on many levels, and it sets a precedent before the marriage to speak openly and freely during the marriage about finances. How frequently do you see a failure to disclose or inadequate disclosure um, on the back end when you're examining prenuptial agreements? Unfortunately, that does come up from time to time, and it could give rise to claims against a spouse who has not, um, you know, properly provided their disclosures. It could lead to a, a claim to set aside the agreement. But in my view, it also seeks to show the true character of the spouses, because if the spouse is not willing to be open and honest in the way into the marriage, the likelihood is that they are going to be the same way on the way out. Right. And it also, this is, we, we talked about strong arm tactics, and this is something that we see quite often um, at my firm when we're dealing with these cases, where, again, typically the husband has pressured the spouse into accepting terms that are, are not equal or not fair given their relationship. Um, notwithstanding that he may be shielding assets and not disclosing them. Do you see things like that often, Amber, or is that, is that a rare occurrence outside of the, the high net worth, highly contentious divorce setting? Well, it certainly could happen, but often the moneyed spouse is the person who wants the agreement or who wishes for the agreement to be enforceable and valid. So for that reason, uh, there is an incentive to provide full and fair financial disclosure. And is there a timing consideration for a prenuptial agreement? I would imagine that the eve of the wedding the night before is not the ideal time to <laughs> hand that over to your spouse and say, please sign. Yes, well, it, it is certainly not ideal. Unfortunately, it does happen. We recommend a minimum of 90 days ahead of time. Um, there does need to be time to negotiate. And depending on your jurisdiction, the case law or law may be that entering into the agreement too close to the marriage date may give rise to a claim to set it aside. So it's important from the lawyer's perspective to do these agreements as far out from the wedding day as possible. Right. And they can be renegotiated after the wedding as well, either in good faith because of a change of circumstance or in some circumstances in bad faith. Certainly. So it would, it would, moving on. 
Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Amber. No, I apologize. I'm so, certainly that is true, depending on the terms of the agreement. Right. So moving on to discovery methods, which is a key component, and we've touched on some of these already, but I think that we need to give them some more depth. Discovery is something that is automatic for divorce proceedings in most common law jurisdictions, um, and it's typically limited in some civil law jurisdictions. Amber, what kinds of documents are usually discoverable, and how does that process work? So there's certain documents that will be expected to be disclosed in every divorce case. And as we discussed previously, you know, most jurisdictions have a version of mandatory disclosure that will include the tax returns, the bank statements, credit card statements, proof of indebtedness, and that sort of thing. Depositions are also an important tool. It's important for the lawyer to think about who may have information related to the spouse's finances, as Hannah discussed, and there is broad ability to take depositions in family law cases. So partners, controllers, bookkeepers, etc. This allows significant insight into the finances of the spouse. So Hannah, what type of information would be most useful to gather at this stage in your view? Well, I think, as you said earlier, Amber, obtaining as much financial information as possible before you go to the divorce stage um, is incredibly useful, and specifically everything which details their assets, structures, locations, as well as details of their financial advisors and associates. I mean, these kind of things are really key, and the earlier we can get that information and analyse it and make sure that we're happy that you know we have all the information we need is is really important another method for the lawyers to get that type of information that the professionals will need is a request for production so the lawyer works with the forensic accountants and the asset recovery team to formulate requests there are also interrogatories requests for admissions and other discovery techniques that allow the lawyer to have the other party to nail down their position on the financial assets. And that often will need to be done. Hannah, what other tools are available? Things such as site visits. So if possible, whilst the, the couple are still amicable and um, on speaking terms, having somebody go on site and obtain an independent valuation um, of a business, for example, when you can get actual physical access to inspect the books and records, um, and also having an opportunity for a forensic CPA to see the business in action is very valuable. Also obtaining regular personal property appraisals is extremely important, and obtaining these formal appraisals of personal property, jewellery, antiques and art, for example, can also, again, be really powerful um, information. And those are both great points. Seeing the business in action is, is critical because a, a common tool for nefarious actors trying to shield assets or launder money that was illicitly gained is to have shell corporations that on paper or from a, you know, a cursory search seem to be businesses that are an ongoing concern and that have some type of legitimate business. But often when you go into their offices, it's a PO box of a registered agent, or it's just not a real business. So having that access to make sure that if, you know, the spouse says, the majority of the money is coming from this business and it does X, Y, and Z. And just to confirm that is, is very important. 
Um, and then again, with personal property appraisals, it's important, especially for long-term marriages, because collectibles, jewelry, art, especially fine art, can appreciate in value. The spouses may not even be aware of the value of some of their personal property. And that does go to the equitable division of, of the estate at the time of divorce. But I think this is a good time to bring up private investigators and private intelligence firms. Uh, my practice benefits greatly from private intelligence. It's an incredibly useful tool. And obviously, it has to be conducted within the ambit of the, the law and the jurisdiction that you're operating in. Um, Hannah and Amber, do you, do you have need for private investigators in, in your individual practices? Generally, we do use them. I think, as we've said before, this needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. We often use open source intelligence as sort of like a phase one if we're doing um, investigatory work. But inevitably, as we just talked about, Chris, having somebody on the ground who can go and look at things in person obviously adds real value and can be really great for gathering that intelligence around, you know, actually what their living lifestyle is like, you know, current um, position with regards to the business, etc. So they're really powerful and we do use them, but it is on a case by case basis and specific to the, the needs of that um, that matter. And from my perspective, Hannah is right, it's a case-by-case -case basis, but as a tip to the divorce matrimonial lawyers, you are the client's biographer, and you really have to ask specific questions and interview the clients to determine whether an investigator may be appropriate in your case. Dissipation claims can be enormous, and discovery may be permitted um, on dissipation claims if you have some of that preliminary evidence. So it's important to ask whether a spouse suspects the other has gambling issues, engages with a prostitution, drug use, um, and other kinds of personal property issues, as uh, Hannah mentioned. We had a case where a spouse was delivering monthly cash to the doorman of the lover's building. There was a, uh, a vehicle, an expensive vehicle parked outside, registered to one of the uh, to one of the spouse's businesses. Depositions were permitted of the doorman of that building, of the lover in that case, and it did lead to a multi-million dollar dissipation award. In other cases, we've encountered clients uh, or spouses who were willing to give all of the assets and walk away. This is kind of suspicious in these type of cases. And we've seen, you know, there could be a hidden storage unit full of valuable assets or other hidden personal property or valuable items. So it is important to, to be aware of those, those things. That does come up time and again, where if, if the spouse seems too willing to give up everything, then that should be a red flag in many instances. Um, there are, of course, other tools that practitioners can utilize through the courts. Hannah, as the UK speaker, could you touch upon what a Norwich Pharmacal order is? We mentioned that earlier in the presentation. Yes, of course. Thank you, Chris. A Norwich Pharmacal order is a court order for the disclosure of documents or information that is available in the United Kingdom and other Commonwealth jurisdictions, such as Jersey, the British Virgin Islands, etc. It is granted against a third party, which has been innocently mixed up in the dispute, such as banks or accountants are often people that we do use a Norwich Pharmacal order against. And 
this order forces the disclosure of documents or information. So it can be incredibly useful when dealing with assets which have been dissipated or disposed of or are believed to have been hidden in the run up to the divorce. And these applications can be made without notice if specific criteria are met, but usually on notice to the third party that it's going to be involving. But they're an incredibly powerful tool which enables you to get really detailed disclosure um, if you are in a situation where you're unable to obtain it from other other parties. Right. And in my experience, at least, they can be very cost effective as well, because I think the payout, as long as they're targeted and based on mm. good information, it you know, far exceeds the, the cost of, of petitioning and, and obtaining the order. Mm. Within the U.S., there, there are two other discovery. They're broader than discovery, but they can be used specifically in this context for discovery tools. Um, first, a 1782 application, which is under the U.S. Code, 1782 allows a litigant or a contemplated litigant in a foreign proceeding to obtain discovery in the U.S. if three criteria are met. And obviously, for anybody listening, you would need to analyze your individual case under the relevant case law under your district. But if the applicant is an interested person under the definition under 1782, if there's a proceeding in a tribunal, which also has a, a definition, and if the discovery target resides or is found in the district. So this is a federal court application. Um, typically, they're liberally granted, although there's some emerging case law that, that is making it more challenging. But it's a, a very effective tool in getting discovery in the U.S. using our liberal discovery system. Um, the other option, especially if there's an, an insolvency issue, as Hannah mentioned earlier, is Chapter 15 of the Bankruptcy Code. Chapter 15, as it currently stands, is relatively new but it's a longstanding kind of tradition that allows uh, the cooperation between a U.S. bankruptcy court and a foreign insolvency court to allow a foreign representative to gain access to the U.S. courts, especially for discovery purposes. Again, discovery in the United States is, is fairly liberal by comparison to other jurisdictions, and the U.S. position in global commerce typically allows for a lot of documentation to reside here and be the subject of these, these two tools. So I think moving from that, we should discuss for the last 10 or so minutes of the presentation, how spouses hide assets, because this is something that practitioners should be aware of. Um, we've discussed some of the strategies and tools available to find assets in high net worth and ultra high net worth marital disputes, but um, seeing how they hide them can also be valuable. Hannah, what are the trends that you're seeing when it comes to asset shielding? We have seen recently the use of um, accounts being opened in the spouse's name or the use of proxies to hold assets and accounts. And that's something which we've seen more regularly um, happening. In addition, we often see the use of complex corporate structures and offshore trust structures. And these are used a lot by high net worth and ultra high net worth families. Just because they have these structures doesn't mean that they are necessarily trying to hide assets, but they are also um, a very good way at, at making it um, much more difficult to understand who the underlying um, asset is owned by. So we're often used in these kind of situations. Right, and, and touching on proxies very quickly, the lifestyle analysis that we mentioned early in the presentation can help identify those persons because without that, that knowledge and that intelligence of, of who is in the inner circle of, 
of the spouse that you think is withholding funds or assets, you wouldn't be able to easily identify whose potential proxies could be. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, shell corporations and offshore accounts are are huge. Those are not new. <laughs> They're time-honored traditions and asset, prote- and asset protection and asset shielding strategies. But some of the jurisdictions that we'll discuss later are becoming more and more frequently used and can make it more difficult to access any assets that are held there. As to Hannah's point about trust structures, if trusts are identified, it's important for the family lawyer to consider whether they need to join those trusts as a party to the proceedings. It's important for the attorneys to understand that the court will not have jurisdiction over trusts if they are not properly joined. So that is an important question uh, and inquiry to make if trusts are identified in your case. Chris, have you seen examples where family trusts are used to hold wealth? We have. And before I go into them, I'm being reminded that because this is a CLE, I am to provide the code. So in order to comply with New York regulations, attorneys looking for CLE credit in New York will need to be able to to access this code. This code is not intended for the West Legal Ed Center audience, either live or on demand. I will read this code twice and only twice and cannot repeat it or email it to you. So please make note of it. The New York state code number is SA31155805. Again, that's S as in Sam, A as in Amber, 31155805221. So going back to trusts, yes, typically, you know, it's very common to have some type of trust structure when you're dealing with high net worth and ultra high net worth families. It's a it's a time honored tax avoidance strategy that is legal in many instances, but it does provide some complexity during a divorce because trusts are seen as as third parties essentially because the the family that has funded the trust is is legally deemed a beneficiary and the trust is administered by a third party, be it a trusted financial advisor or a professional trust service company. So Amber do you typically join the the trust as a as a litigant in a dispute? Depending on the circumstances, absolutely yes. It is often uh, the case that we have multiple parties and that the trust or a business being one of those third parties. And Hannah, how do you see trust structures used? Very similarly, I think, um, as you say, they have traditionally always been used by um, families to hold their wealth. Um, But I think, as we've touched on here, they can be used in slightly different ways. So now we are seeing more um, families using these offshores to actually hide their wealth structure and make it opaque as to who actually owns it, albeit it's becoming more difficult. I think more jurisdictions are now seeing that, you know, trust structures need to be um, more transparent. Um, They're becoming more strict about their uses. And therefore, we are seeing the use of more just complex corporate structures with different layers and with these proxies put in um, to, um, to, to hide or make it more opaque and more difficult for people to understand actually who the ultimate owners are. Um, but yeah, trusts are definitely something that we see um, in these sort of divorce cases um, quite often. 
Right. And one more thing, and I, I just forgot to mention it during discovery, there is an emerging trend for unexplained wealth orders. I know that that's something that's emerging in the UK and some of the Commonwealth countries where courts can actually say, you seem to effectively, and I'm, I'm very, very summarily summarizing this, but effectively you seem to be a very wealthy person and nobody understands why. Please explain to us how that came to be. So that's something that, that can also be used kind of tangentially. Um, and Hannah, you previously mentioned opening accounts and spouses' names or other names as a, as a way of shielding assets. But if you'd like, do you want to further expand on that? We have um, a particular case at the moment where, for example, um, somebody who's actually now, um, we're dealing with the bankruptcy in that case, they were quite open with us that they were being paid um, to act as a proxy for a um, high net worth in a different country and um, yeah, from Russia in that particular case um, to, to enable them to actually um, bring their wealth into the UK under um, a different guise. And as I said, I think this is becoming something which hopefully now with the, the rule changes with regards to always being able to have to give details of the ultimate beneficial owner. Um, we're seeing less of in some respects in, in the bigger scale, but I think it is still very much there and is something that um, we have seen quite, quite recently on quite a few of our cases. So Hannah and Chris, this has been very, very uh, excellent information on how spouses hide assets. But from the lawyer's perspective, a question that many lawyers have is, is recovery even possible in certain parts of the world? Recovery is possible in, in much of the world. Um, there, are, there are financial trends that allow that. Most even bad actors hedge their investments and their, their financial holdings globally. So frequently, more frequently than not, you'll see uh, former spouses and, and just bad guys in general holding dollar accounts to hedge against other currency investments. There are discovery tools that that are accessible in the United States for dollar transactions, so that that acts as a backdoor into some of those accounts that would otherwise be hidden or undiscoverable. Um, but obviously, there are jurisdictions, as there always are, that are more difficult. Russia, Hannah and I have mentioned several times, is a difficult jurisdiction to operate in. Um, the trend has been for a lot of the, the ultra high net worth Russians to move into the EU, into the UK. So that does allow, you know, courts that are perhaps more trustworthy to intervene in, in divorce proceedings. Venezuela is something that, that Amber and, and myself see a lot of in South Florida because there are so many Venezuelan immigrants here. Um, Venezuela obviously has a quasi-functional court system. Parts of it, uh, the mercantile court, the commercial court operate fairly, you know, smoothly, but there are other parts that are, that are corrupted by political influence. Um, there are the traditional centers, Liechtenstein, Switzerland, that have privacy concerns, although those are, those are fail, or not failing, I'm sorry, those are falling pretty quickly in the 21st century. Um, and in the Middle East, because of of geopolitical relations and you know just different norms of law can be sometimes difficult to operate in but none of that should dissuade any of the practitioners listening from at least trying in those those jurisdictions or if cases are coming out of those jurisdictions because like i said there is access 
in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in the EU, um, to courts that are competent and, and experienced in recovering assets that are that are shielded in these jurisdictions. Hannah, do you have anything to add? I think from my perspective, I was going to say that with, for example, the Middle East, I think it is we've got a particular case at the moment where it's the main um, person involved in that is based out in the Middle East in a specific um, area, which is not very easy to challenge. But in that case, he does hold assets in other countries um, which are easier to pursue, such as America. Um, and therefore, what we are looking to do in those in that case is to look to pursue the assets which are in an easier location, the American ones, for example, with a view to applying enough pressure to hopefully, you know, bring that party to the table to enable them to settle the whole dispute. So, again, as Chris said, it's Despite there may be, you know, the, the majority of the wealth being held somewhere, we often see that there are other assets um, in other jurisdictions which enable you to apply some pressure potentially to then bring them to the table and, and um, settle the matter. So, yeah, definitely always ask the question and we can yeah, surely find a way to um, recover those assets. And I think Hannah hit the nail on the head there. Often in, in these types of cases, it is a matter of pressure because they could hold the vast majority of their assets in a jurisdiction that's difficult or impossible to, to execute a judgment in. But uh, remember that high net worth and ultra high net worth people like to vacation in more friendly jurisdictions in the United States, in the Hamptons, in the South of France, in jurisdictions where courts are more open to enforcing. And if their lifestyle becomes uncomfortable, then they are more willing to come to the table to settle the dispute and move on so that they can enjoy the rest of their life. Mm. So at this point, um, I, we've reached the end of our presentation, but I think it's important that we provide some takeaways for all of our listeners. Um, so Hannah and Amber, I'll, I'll cede the floor to both of you first. Okay, so I guess my two takeaways would be um, to make sure your client gathers as much financial information as possible around the assets values, structures and locations before they push the divorce button. And that links to my second top takeaway, which would be if there's any uncertainty around assets or they're held in offshore jurisdictions where there's risks of dissipation are potentially identified, ensure you consult with asset recovery specialists at an early stage as they can provide intelligence around assets owned as well as providing invaluable knowledge experience and insight, which can add real tangible benefits for your client when it comes to negotiating settlements and planning safeguarding or enforcement strategies. My takeaways are first, whether the client proposes opening a secret bank account in another jurisdiction, moving assets to an offshore trust, or having a family member or other friend hold money for them, the lawyer's advice is very simple. Do not do it. The client must be advised not to conceal information about property, not to hold back relevant documents, or, um, you know, in, in, or to place unrealistic values 
um, or omit assets from sworn financial statements. The second takeaway is take the time to really interview your client and ask specific questions. Clients, especially the impecunious spouse, often do not know what facts are important, and you may discover crucial information, a potential dissipation claim, where money be, may be hidden, or other facts that can be instrumental to success in your case. Rely on your team of professionals, including asset recovery professionals, to help ask relevant questions to both your client and the opposing client. That's great. And I think the only thing that I would add, or maybe two things to both of those sets of points is that, you know, all of these professionals play well in the sandbox together. We each have our own role. We're all used to working on teams with, with other experts in their field. And I think that as long as upon a cost benefit analysis, there is a potential upside, that there's no harm in reaching out to specialists who are asset recovery professionals to see if there is something in that case that they can, they can assist with. Um, and I think with that, we're at time, so we don't have time to get to questions, but if anybody listening has any questions, we've prepared a set of materials that go in depth on some of the points that we've discussed and also provides um, our contact information for Hannah, Amber, and myself. So if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. And with that, I hope everybody has a good morning, afternoon, or evening.